This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back to another episode this week. As always, I'm your host, Avery Kreibold, with Innovating a Bright Future, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. For today's episode, we're going to take a much, much closer look at soils. I'm talking to Judy Fitzpatrick from Microbiometer about the micro-scale ecosystems that we find in soils, how we can keep those ecosystems safe and healthy, and why it matters. Enjoy the show. Today I'm welcoming Judy Fitzpatrick from Mycobiometer and I'm excited about this conversation today because I initially found you on LinkedIn and at first I wasn't too sure about talking to Mycobiometer because it didn't seem like it was all that related to climate change. I looked a little more into it and I did a bunch of research on it and I was very wrong because as we're going to get into I'm sure, the field that you focus on is absolutely essential to mitigating climate change and improving our food production. We are also recording this very soon after the latest IPCC report, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that as well. What else can you tell me about Microbiometer? Hi, Avery. So glad to be here on a day when, you know, it's just been pointed out to us again how importantly it is that we do something immediately to uh, do this. Now, I'm, uh, I'm one of the developers of Microbiometer, And our test is a $10, 10-minute test that you read on your cell phone and tells you how many microbes are in in your soil. And it also gives you the breakdown of the microbes into the percentage of fungi and the percentage of bacteria. This is very, very important because it's very, very hard to measure soil organic carbon. And we know 50% of the soil organic carbon that was in the soil has been released into the atmosphere. And the soil organic carbon is the kind of the money in the bank that soils have. All right, so you know how I do this by now. If there's something I don't understand very well, I'll make an explanation so that both you and I can understand it better. Soil organic carbon is the carbon components in the soil that were once a part of something living. When living organisms die, like plants, bacteria, animals, fungi, pretty much anything, their physical form is organic matter. There is generally quite high amounts of carbon in this organic matter, which is where that organic carbon comes from. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. And how exactly would you define soil organic carbon? Where does it come from? So how do you form soil organic matter? Soil organic matter is actually the bodies of dead microbes, 60 to 80%. And then partially digested food that's been digested by the microbes from leftover roots and litter that didn't get actually eaten or incorporated into something living. And then this becomes stuck to soil particles. It is like 90 to 99% of the carbon that's in the soil. And when they measure it, they're measuring down to two meters deep. 
So it takes up to 10 years to figure out if you've actually measured an increase in soil organic carbon because the other portions are very reliant on carbon that you just put down as fertilizers and your microbial biomass. It's impossible to increase soil organic carbon and sequester it without increasing your microbes. It just doesn't happen, okay? It's impossible. What people have been publishing recently is that the fungal to bacterial ratio and the microbial quotient, which I'll talk about, actually predict whether or not you're saving carbon in the soil. Because if you're going to invest 10 years to increase the, the, the huge amount of soil organic carbon in your soil, you'd certainly want to know if you're on the right track. You don't want to invest 10 years and then find out, gee, I lost. Another quick aside here because Judy mentioned a couple more technical terms that we have to deal with. First, the fungi to bacterial ratio is exactly what it sounds like. It's the ratio between the mass of fungi in soils to the mass of bacteria. This ratio is one of the things that microbiometers test measures, and it's one of the most important aspects of soil health. The ideal ratio varies from crop to crop and ecosystem to ecosystem, but on average, production crops like wheat, barley, canola, and the rest generally grow best in a pretty balanced ratio. The microbial quotient is another ratio, but this ratio is between the mass of microbes and the CO2 emitted by them. This is something we talk about more later on, but the lower the microbial quotient, the better, because it means the microbes are working more efficiently and emitting less carbon dioxide. If the quotient is high, microbes are working harder to do what they need to do, and they emit more carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. And a lot of the carbon sequestration programs that are out there don't actually reward somebody for 100 years. And you have to commit to the same practice for 100 years. Like, none of us is probably going to be farming for 100 years. That's not very useful. So what does that mean? What have you found with this organic carbon, and how does it impact climate change? But when I go out west... And I look at the farms out there that are farmed chemically. The soil organic carbon, I've never measured it above 100 micrograms of microbial biomass per gram of soil. And so Brady and I sat down and we looked at the USDA figures on how many acres of U.S. farmland are farmed conventionally and looked at how much pounds of soil are in the topsoil. And we have calculated, and you're the first public announcement we made of this, okay? We're, we're working on getting it going, and I hope you'll be one of the people helping us. If everyone in the United States who was farming with heavy ke chemicals conventionally put in a cover crop, they could go from 100 to 200 at least in one year. If they did that, given the number of acres that are under farming in the United States, we would immediately, just in the bodies of microbes, sequester 50 times more carbon dioxide than the United States is emitting into the atmosphere. Wow, Those that's incredible. Those are the numbers from the USDA itself. And if people went to regenerative farming, we could go much higher than that. 
I mean, just think about it. The United States is responsible, depending on what you read it, between 11 and 15% polluting gases in the atmosphere. We could go negative in a year just if all our farmers did that. Okay, so obviously there's a ton of potential here for all types of things. When you say things like reaching global carbon negativity within a year, the question that immediately springs to mind is, what is the holdup? Why isn't everyone already doing this? Now, you know, it's very, it's very expensive for a farmer to do this. I mean, he could put in the wrong crop, and then it won't match the crop that he's going to grow, that he depends on. You know, farmers work on a very tight margin. Their profit in a good year is 1% of what they put in. They don't have, a, they don't have any room for, for error. So basically, we need help. And the other thing is there's no formula. So the cover crop they put in has to be able to work together with the crop they're going to put in after that. And it has to be the right cover crop for, for their soil. So they basically need help doing these things. And you can't predict it because different soils need different things. So different cover crops work quite differently in different parts of the country and with different crop sequences and stuff like that. But this would be such a big start if we could just get people to recognize that we need to do this. I mean, imagine putting 50 times more carbon dioxide into the soil than we emit per year. Okay, perfect. So to summarize, soil health, very important, game changer for climate change, but proper soil management is very difficult for farmers at the moment. How are you, microbiometer, making it easier? I mean, for our test, which we're really, you know, is, we designed to be as cheap and as easy to, to develop as possible. It's read by cell phone, so we, we have an extraction fluid and a little tube. You put the soil, you measure the soil out, you put it in the tube, you put the powder in, you put the water in. You whisk it for 30 seconds with the whisker we give. And 20 minutes later, you take three drops and put it on a card. And then you take a picture of the card with your cell phone. And it tells you the microbial biomass in carbon per gram of soil. And it's excellent at telling you what... And we also give you the fungal-to-bacterial ratio. What we know is... The fungal to bacterial ratio really tells you whether you're saving carbon because fungi don't make as much carbon dioxide as bacteria. Fungi are much more efficient at storing carbon in the soil. Are you hurting anything when you increase your fungi? No, the fungi generally increase as the microbial biomass increases because the microbial population knows how to grow itself. It's been growing for 3 billion years. It can reconstitute itself really well, given the right foods. How can you tell if you're giving it the right food? The microbial biomass will increase. It's very simple. Clover 
increased the microbial biomass from over 100 to 600 micrograms per gram in a month, whereas ryegrass basically didn't increase it at all. So, you know, there's different, you know, it's a big effect of different things. So our, our test is really an incredible tool for that. And 70% of our sales are outside the United States. And that's because as the cost of chemicals has increased dramatically, especially nitrogen, people in the rest of the world can't afford them. They're forced to go regenerative or organic. And when they do, a chemical test doesn't tell you what the soil is capable of doing. You're adding nitrogen to soil. The plant, knowing that it needs nitrogen, sends out exudates out of its roots, and it sends 30 to 50% of the food it makes out the roots to feed the microbe. It stops feeding those microbes when you feed it nitri- too much nitrogen. All right, time to explain exudates. This one was by far the hardest to research because clearly exudates aren't something that the public talks about much since almost every article that I found was directly from a scientific research paper. So as best as I understand it, here we go. When plants are in need of something, minerals and most of all nitrogen, they send out little bubbles of nutrients and chemical signals out from their roots into the soil. These bubbles attract bacteria in the soil because of the chemical signals And when the bacteria show up, they find the meal waiting for them in the little bubble. When the bacteria get close, the plant can then absorb some of those specific nutrients like nitrogen that it needs to form a plant that it gets from the bacteria. Now, okay, Judy, so we've covered a lot already, and I want to make sure that I'm following along all right, and I have all the pieces of this very complex puzzle. Can you define what exactly a microbe is, please? The soil... We take like an eighth of a teaspoon of soil. That's about what we use. And we put it in uh, a third of an ounce of water. And in a good soil, you can't see through it. It's all microbes. That's how many microbes are there. What is their function? You have bacteria called rhizobia. The rhizobia actually capture nitrogen from the air and turn it into nitrogen that the plant can use. If you took biology in high school, these rhizobia, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, were part of the nitrogen cycle. They're the bacteria in the soil that pull nitrogen out of the air and feed it to plants. They're one of the only ways besides literal lightning strikes that can turn nitrogen in our air back into nitrogen that can be used by plants and animals. As soon as you're putting down nitrogen, those guys aren't stimulated by the plant to make nitrogen. Now, how does that nitrogen get from the microbe to the plant? One of the ways, which we've just discovered, is called rhizophagy, meaning root eating. So the microbes enter the root, they travel up the root, and while they're doing that, The plant extracts 40% of their nitrogen, carbon, phosphorus, etc. And then the microbes cause the plant to form little roots, and they exit through the little root and go back out 
pick up more stuff and come back in. They can, they can be responsible for 40% of the nitrogen that the plant gets. Once you put down artificial, you know, it, it's kind of like addiction. If a person becomes addicted to an opioid, then their body stops making their own feel-good molecules. So when a person goes off opioids, they're severely depressed. The same thing for plants when they go off nitrogen, okay? The, if the plant is fed nitrogen, it stops feeding the microbes. If it hasn't been urged to come to the plant by the plant putting out the right food, okay, then they're not there. The other important thing that the microbes are doing for the plant is they are basically the plant immune system. So when the plant gets an infection, it calls in the bacteria that makes the antibiotic that it needs. The plant is so intelligent. It can diagnose its own disease and it can prescribe and bring in the bacteria that does it. I mean, all our, all our antibiotics come from the soil. And, you know, what we found, what somebody just found recently is that as the bacteria increase, the fungi increase. So they usually increase in tandem. And when they're working together, they make a very balanced population. And both populations are healthier when, it, when it's balanced for that particular environment. Okay, so side note here. I was obviously having a bit of trouble with this conversation, seeing as I just rewound the conversation to the very beginning to ask what a microbe is. But that's because this is pretty new to me. I'm used to learning about solar panels and electrons and batteries. I can understand that. But I haven't learned as much about biology and the impact of biological systems on climate and the planet as a whole. So seeing as I was struggling to understand the concepts here, I figured I would summarize it quickly. Keep in mind, I'm not an expert, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if you are an expert. Like I said before, soil health is important, extremely important. Soil health is dictated by the microbes in the soil. Microbes consist of bacteria and fungi. Bacteria and fungi are different in a bunch of ways, but I am so not qualified to speak on that because it's complicated and I don't want to give you the wrong information. So for our purposes, fungi and bacteria are just different subcategories of microbes. One of the ways that bacteria can be important to soil health is in nitrogen fixing. Certain bacteria found in the soil can actually pull nitrogen out of the air, which plants need. When plants are in need of nitrogen, they shoot out these exudates that we talked about earlier, basically little bubbles of nutrition that feed bacteria. Those bacteria then get sucked up into the plant roots where the plant can extract the nitrogen from the bacteria. What Judy says the problem with adding nitrogen to the soil is, that plants no longer need the nitrogen from bacteria, which means they don't send out those exudates and the bacteria die off. That's bad because bacteria aid in plant health in other ways like healing infection, as well as sequestering carbon in the soil. But that's only half of our microbe subcategories, so let's find out what fungi does. Okay, so that's bacteria. Now what does fungi do and how is it different? The fungi then mine phosphorus. Plants need phosphorus. There's plenty of phosphorus in our soil. It's not soluble, so it's not available 
unless you have a lot of fungi there. And the fungi pick it up. They have enzymes and, and acids that dissolve it off minerals and they bring it to the plant and they actually trade it. They get their carbon from the plant and in return, they bring phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, and sulfur to the plant. So in the system before we started using chemicals, the plant was basically fed by microbes. And in nature, if you have a prairie, like the grass dies, it falls down, it goes back to feed the microbes, the microbes feed the new plants, grass goes up, grass falls down. But now with harvesting, what happens is we take the corn and we ship it to the city. So there's nothing left there to put more carbon back into the soil, to put more nutrients back. We're shipping all the nutrients away. And so we need to put down fertilizers, organic fertilizers, and return them to the soil so that we can grow the microbial population. And once again, we can have the microbial population feeding it. All right, so there you have it. Like bacteria, fungi have a mutually beneficial relationship. Fungi mine the phosphorus in rock, ores, and soils that plants can't access and then trade that phosphorus and other minerals for essential particles like carbon that they get back from the plant. Now this is where fungi is important for climate and why fungi are so much more effective at sequestering carbon than bacteria. Because unlike bacteria, fungi are decomposers. Like Judy says, when plants die, they fall down, they get covered in dirt, and they also get covered in fungi. Fungi actually feed on this dead organic matter. They use it to grow and reproduce and strengthen their population. When they feed on dead plants, they consume that matter. It's changed shape. So when we harvest everything out of a field, we're starving those fungi microbes of their primary food source, and their population will decline. When that population declines, there's less phosphorus available to plants when they need it, and the plants suffer too. That is why planting cover crops is so important. Cover crops are non-harvest crops. You grow them, then you let them die, and then you don't touch them, except sometimes to mix them into the soil. That organic matter that's left on the ground in the fall or early spring feeds and grows the fungi population so that when harvest time rolls around, the crops that get harvested can grow as efficiently as possible thanks to the number of fungi. <sighs> Who knew? Back to our conversation. So my question for you now is, how else can we actually store carbon in the soil? We have to build the microbial population in order to store carbon in our soils. If you have an unbalanced system and you don't have a good fungal to bacterial ratio, as the bacteria and fungi work, they have to work too hard, like to find nitrogen or to find something else or keep going. So the carbon, which is all they really need from the plant, the carbon that they need, and when they get it, it goes into the air as carbon dioxide. Fungi, if they don't have to work so hard, like if the fertilizer that you put down is optimally balanced for your for your pop for your population and and your group, then they don't have to work so hard 
and their ability to store carbon goes up. The carbon stays in the bodies of the microbes. It doesn't get breathed into the air. So some people look at respiration, like amount of carbon dioxide that microbes make, but basically that's just a measure of how much activity there is. It doesn't tell you anything about storing carbon. But the fungal to bacterial ratio correlates with storing, storing carbon uh, like 98%. Now, that's a temporary storage. You know, you have to keep going. Or next year, if, you, if you're not good to them, they're going to use up all the stuff, carbon that you stored this year, and you'll go right back to 100. So it's, it's, not, it's not hard to go back to 100. You've got to keep working at it. Because these microbes continue to need fertilizers and the environment that is required to have a healthy microbial population. And excess carbon then is stored long term and it's stored when it's attached to soil particles. The bacteria are so good at it because the bacteria and the fungi make glues. And those glues allow them to stick to the soil. So you can put down different forms of nitrogen that are easily taken up by, by, by microbes. And then the nitrogen is stored in your microbial population. And it doesn't wash away into, the, into your water supplies. Chemical nitrogen will wash away. But nitrogen that's that's stored in a microbial body that's stuck to, to a soil particle is not going to walk away. The other thing is the stickiness that they make is what gives soil its structure. So it also makes the soil structure sticky, so they kind of stick together. So it forms what we call aggregates. And these aggregates really help the microbes to survive. All right, one more summary. And if you listen to this and you're like, yep, bacteria, fungi, ratio, soil, aggregates, fungi respiration, got it, then you're more than welcome to skip when I'm trying to make it easier to understand. So one more time, say it with me. Soil health, important. And once again, soil health comes from that fungi to bacterial ratio. The ideal ratio is different everywhere, but it's important that the proper balance is found. When you have a balanced microbe population, when bacteria and fungi trade their minerals for carbon, the carbon they absorb is also used for things like reproduction, soil structure, and population maintenance. In other words, they use it. They store that carbon. If the balance is improper, too many fungi, not enough bacteria, whatever it might be, when they receive carbon from the plant, they basically just exhale it into the air. So all that carbon dioxide that the tree or piece of grass or corn stalk just pulled out of the air and gave to the microbe, it all just ends up back in our atmosphere anyways if we don't take proper care of the soil itself. So you mentioned one of the most shocking things I've heard on this podcast for a long time. If we are able to implement cover cropping, planting a different plant like clover or grass on a field when you aren't actively growing a crop for money, that cover crop basically holds the soil in place, prevents it from washing away, and provides microbes in the soil with a food source. Implementing that system, according to Microbiometer, can pull 50 times the emissions out of the atmosphere than the total emissions of the entire U.S. on a yearly basis. 
Are there any other technologies related to agriculture that we should be doing now other than cover cropping, and how else can we adapt our agriculture systems to be better and more sustainable? Uh, I think we can give farmers a lot more help, okay, and, and do things to eliminate the risk that they face. Most of the research that's done is, like, I grew corn in a corner of Nebraska with three different cover crops, and this worked. That doesn't tell you anything about what's going to happen in Oklahoma. It probably doesn't even tell you, like, what's going to happen in another corner of Nebraska with another type of corn that you're growing. So these guys really need a lot more assistance. They have to become researchers in a lot of ways because only planting really in the field ahead of time will tell them which cover crop is going to be good for them, which cover crop then is not going to compete with the crop they put in. I mean, farmers have been destroyed by cover crops because maybe you have a cover crop that competes with your own crop, so you don't get a crop. You have to be able to either get rid of that cover crop or have a cover crop that you know you can control and doesn't compete. It, it's much more complex than you know saying, you know, like farmers don't want to do it. It takes, you know, the best thing to do would be for them to do like you know, quite big plots ahead of time to see what would work and what would work with the plants they actually have to plant afterwards. Because, you know, we talked about the fact that they, they're living on 1% profit. And a lot of these farms, you know, it takes a million a year to run on it. And maybe the guy can take, take out $100,000 on a good year. On a bad year, he may lose 100000 But if you have adequate microbes, Okay, and you build your soil for two or three years, you'll cut erosion, and your soil will be able to hold 50% more water. So you're much more drought resistant. Okay, and there's studies showing that the root systems are much better, so the crops actually stand up better to high winds and lots of water and stuff, which can knock plants over if they don't have a good root system. Also, when you harvest, what's left is roots. And roots are actually a very good source of soil carbon. So, you know, putting in a cover crop that has good roots uh, adds texture to your soil. It keeps your microbial biomass healthy during that period. It covers your soil so that when rain comes down, it doesn't wash your dirt away and cause more erosion. It creates a soil texture. And within a couple of years, you can see soil go from yellow to, to, to dark brown. It's, it's amazing what you can see and, and see this big increase in it. And people don't have to give up using chemical nitrogen entirely. There are people using it judiciously. So they don't use so much of it that it affects the, the microbial population and they don't put it down, or they don't use forms of it that actually inhibit the microbial population. But the farmer really can't afford to lose very much in crop. And basically, 
if you're raising crops without using high chemicals like we use, cuts production by 10%. Now, once the farmer gets into it, the fact that natural fertilizers are much cheaper and the amount of pesticides he needs to use are lower, the cost can even out. So when a person gets a good system going, the system is financially stable and works for them, but they have to get there. <laughs> and they have to get there when they don't have a lot to invest. And they're, you know, always on the edge, we all know. And we rely on them. But organically grown foods have 2,000 times more antioxidants. These are the antioxidants a plant that's not fed pesticides and things make to protect itself its immune system. So, you know, our gut microbes stimulate us, stimulate our immune system. Our immune system doesn't develop without our gut microbes. The plant immune system doesn't develop without the, the microbes that are in the soil. So you can get food that has, it's not poisoned by pesticides, it has much better taste because these are the antioxidants and things are what make food taste much better. These antioxidants are not listed as nutrients by the USDA, but we all know they're anti-cancer, they're anti-inflammatory, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. That's a great place to wrap up the bulk of our conversation today. You've given me a lot of new information. You've taught me a lot. And I'm sure this episode will be an incredibly educational experience for our listeners out there. I just have a couple of short answer questions that I want you to answer as fast as you can if you've got the time for it before we get going. Okay. And I'm pretty sure of the answer to this first question, but if you could do one thing to reduce carbon emissions around the world, what would it be? I think cover crops and regenerative farming techniques are the most immediate change we can make to how we do things. It's going to take a while for us to move away from, um, you know, oil and gas as sources of energy without really disrupting the economy. But I think this would be the most rapid effect we could get. Right. My second question is, what is your favorite part of your job? I think finding the wonder of, of what Earth can do and what these microbes can do and what we need to do, it, it's, it, it keeps me thinking all the time about it. It's so marvelous. That's awesome. That's awesome. If you could tell people... And I should say consumers, if you could tell consumers, people who are buying the products at the supermarkets, not the people growing them, to do one thing, what would that be? Should we all go vegan? Should we all eat only organic foods? What would that thing be? I really try to eat organic foods because I know those farmers or practice it or, you know, sustainably grown food. Because I know those, those farmers are, are working with us to save the planet. They're not just doing that. So I want to support them. 
And I feel that, you know, the nutrition I'm getting from these foods is, is superior. And I know that I'm getting fewer pesticides and, and toxins. And I know I'm, I'm getting the vitamins and minerals that the antioxidants that, that I need. Great suggestion. I like that suggestion. I've never really known what an organic food is or what the benefits of it are. So I'm really grateful for you coming on and telling me exactly how all of that works. My next question is, what has been the most challenging part of developing microbiometer? Do you deal with people who object to your processes and don't think that you guys are doing the right thing either for the economy or the farmers? Or does everyone really accept that what you're doing is for the best for our planet and for our farmers? Well, I think we're at the forefront of people realizing that lab tests, agricultural lab tests are over 100 years old, that those lab tests are not giving the big picture about what the soil is capable of. I mean, it, it tells you you need nitrogen, whereas if you grow your microbes, you have microbes that will make the nitrogen. You don't have to put it down, you know, always. And it tells you you need phosphorus when actually you don't need phosphorus. There's plenty of phosphorus, way more than they, most soils need. But you need uh, fungi to harvest it from the soil. And then you won't get phosphorus pollution and phosphorus is getting more expensive and we're running out of phosphorus. So I think, you know, we're at the forefront. I mean, at, at the forefront, it's always, it's always difficult to be here. Our first clients were cannabis growers. They're young, they like technology cut off from a lot of mainstream testing and stuff like that. And what they discovered was that the marijuana flavor and smell, etc., which is what people were looking for, was so dependent on the microbes and growing, my, growing marijuana in soil, that marijuana grown in soil has these antioxidants and all these extra components. So they were very interested in, you know, experimenting in that area. And, and they're young. They like to experiment. The average age of a farmer is over 60 in the United States. They send their soil to a lab to be tested. And it comes back with, this is how much NPK you need to put down. And they've done this for a long, long time. So they're not used to saying, I should grow my microbes and how am I going to do this? And this is a whole big new system. You know, so it's, it's young people that are changing this and groups like Acres and Moses. We were just at the Moses campaign and North NOFA in New York and other organizations that are doing what they can to support people wanting to do organic and sustainable farming. Awesome. Great. I have one last quick question for you. With everything that you're seeing in the world around you and all of your experience within microbiometer and with out of microbiometer, 
Do you believe that we are still capable of reducing emissions enough so that we can meet the goals set out by things like the UN and the Paris Agreement? Is that still possible? If we would do, if we would decide that we were going to do something really dramatic, like demand that everybody raise, do cover crops and, you know, cover their losses and, you know, see how that something like that worked and do things on a scale like that. I think we could. I just don't see, I just don't see the older population most of the time doing that. I think this, I see it in the younger population. I, I see it, we have a lot of, we work with a lot of schools and things like that. They're understanding it. But the older group, they're, they're very hard to change. I'm, I'm sure that's extreme. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you something. When I talk to people your age, what terrifies me is some of them say, I don't want children. I don't want to bring children into this world when I see what's happening to the world. And I find that such a, a sad, sad thing. I mean, I, I see a level of desperation that's terrifying to me. And uh, I love the fact that you're doing this and we want to do anything we can to support people like you. I mean, we started out with this test and one of the things we realized was the really big job wasn't selling the test it was getting information out. Absolutely. I'm more than happy to be involved with you on that front and getting this message out to everyone because it really is shocking and inspiring to see the potential that just caring for our soils and caring for the way that we produce food can really have. Some of those numbers you mentioned are just astronomical like if we can adjust a few things and make these small changes the insanely high and insanely meaningful impact that we can have on climate and on the health of our ecosystems and of our economies so that's a great place to round up this conversation thank you so much for coming on judy you've taught me so much in the last 45 minutes i really appreciate you making the time to come on and i can't wait to keep Keep keeping up with Microbiometer. Okay, well, we're counting on people you like you to change the world. Go for it. What a great episode for our second to last week of the show. Big thank you to Judy for coming on and sharing so much new information with me. It's been a while since I had an episode that taught me as much as this one did. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you learned something, too. As we round out this season, I want to encourage you to follow our free email newsletter that you can find on the front page of our website, innovatingabrightfuture.com, and also in the show notes. If you follow us on social media, you probably noticed that we haven't been posting as much, and unfortunately, that's just because of time constraints, but we always make sure to get that email out every single week, so if you want to stay up to date with the show and what's going on, that is definitely the best way to do it. And finally, spring is here. Maybe you're looking at buying some new clothes for the summer, and if you are, I would ask you to try out some sustainable buying practices. Start with secondhand stuff, thrift stores, consignment, stuff like that. And if you don't find anything there, try to stick to brands that make sustainability a big part of their business. Some of these brands are Toad & Co, Patagonia, and Tentree. 
Now, Tentry is one of my all-time favorite brands. If you're looking for fun spring clothes, follow the link to Tentry in the show notes and use code TBS214. That is TBS214 to get 10% off of your order only for the next three days. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. I hope you enjoyed this episode and this season. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.